Mac Power Users, episode 716, Workflows with Chris Upchurch. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? I am good. It's fall. You know, there's... uh, Leaves are dancing in the air. We're talking about workflows. It's a pretty good day. Yeah, I, I have a, a bone to pick with our audience. Um, on last week's feedback show, I we did a segment on my 3D printer, and I talked about how I was using it for organization. And I had like 10 people from our audience send me links to like R2-D2 prints and, uh, you know, Star Wars figures. Uh, one guy sent me the link to the website where you can build a life-size R2-D2 out of 3D printed parts, fill it with Arduinos and electronics, and then have it drive around your house. And I feel like all of you are conspiring to make sure I don't ever get any work done again. And um, I thank you for it. I thank you for it. <laughs> uh, and just for the record, I haven't done anything, but I have saved links. Okay. I have done that. We'll yeah. keep us posted on that. Uh, but today we are joined by a very special guest. Welcome to the show, Chris. Great to be here. Chris, we met at the uh, the Chicago meetup, but you and I talked several times in the forums over the years. You, you were a guest on the Focus show um, as well, I believe, about a year ago. And uh, I've really come to appreciate your opinions and take on things. Chris uh, Gang is uh, is a fellow MPU nerd and worked in the computer industry. We're going to get into that deeper, but also decided at some point, I guess, what was that, about three years ago, Chris, that you were going to become a river guide and just took a left turn on your life and got all the training you need and brought all your, your um, organizational efforts to bear and... Uh, you do that now. So you are not only a Mac nerd, you're a guy who takes people down rivers as well as other things. About a year and a half ago, I was on a, a river trip in the Grand Canyon just as a guest paying to to be there. Uh, it was an 18-day trip. And by about day nine, I was talking to the guides on that trip saying, all right, what what do I have to do to get into this business? And yeah. <laughs> uh they they gave me some very good advice, uh, lots of great insight into to how you get into that. And so I, uh, by the time I got to the airport in Las Vegas for my flight home, I signed up for a guide school and uh, quit my job two days later. I worked on the Rogue River both uh, that summer and this most recent summer. The first year I was up there, I was doing day trips. And then uh, this uh, most recent summer, I was uh, doing uh, three to five day multi-day trips down the wild and scenic section of the road. Uh, really uh, just fit my life perfectly, really uh, seems to be what I am destined to do in life. At least that's what it feels like at the moment. That's amazing. And we went through that whole story on Focused 165. If you want to check it out, we'll put a link in the show notes. But it's very inspirational to me. I love it when people... Uh, find they're a little bit out of alignment and they find a way to fix it. And that's what you did. But you're also a Mac nerd and you're not on the river all year. Um, you also do some development work, right? Yeah, I have a off-season job working for a company that does location modeling for carbon capture and storage. So we can uh, 
We can talk about that a little later, but uh, it involves mostly programming. Well, Chris, I, uh, I'm really looking forward to the show. So we're going to be talking about your gear. We're going to talk about what you're doing when you're not on the river and what you do when you're on the river, because there's a lot of technology behind what you do. And I think we should probably get started, though, uh, as an official MPU guest. We got to know your gear. What, what are you driving there? Well, my daily driver is a M1 Mac Studio. Uh, I was very unlucky or perhaps lucky in that the week before the Mac Studio was announced, the original Mac Studio, this M1 model, yeah. my uh, beloved 5K iMac died. So I spent a week using, uh, using a, a laptop, and then Apple announced the M1 Mac Studio. And of course, especially given that I no longer had a desktop. I was uh, an instant buy on that. So I, I ordered the very first day it came on sale. Uh, I also ordered three of the stu beautiful studio displays when I did that. Um, I've always really loved screen real estate. When I was running that 27-inch iMac, I also had a couple of uh, Dell 4K displays that sat one on either side of the, the iMac. But... Uh, you know, they have, they are technically, the Dell displays were technically retina resolution, but they didn't really match up quality-wise or color-wise with that beautiful panel in the, the 5K iMac. So Apple finally going back to making great external displays, great if expensive external displays, I was, uh, I was all in on that. Uh, so ordered those three displays uh, along with the Mac Studio, and uh, that's been my uh, desktop driver ever since. All right, so we cannot let this this pass by. Uh, three studio displays. Uh, uh, Chris sent us a picture again. We're going to put it in the show notes. It, it, I'll just say to begin with, it's kind of beautiful seeing three big studio <laughs> displays on your desk, right? You know. Uh, it reminds me, I don't know, there's a famous picture of Al Gore's office years ago when Apple was making the, what well, was it the 30-inch cinema yeah. display, Stephen? Yep. Yeah, 30-inch. And he had three of them on his computer desk, and everybody was just, like, shocked by it. Also, if memory serves, he had the messiest office I had ever seen. But the uh, but he had three cinema displays. And, and Chris, you're right there, man. You've got... Uh, 27 inches times three. I don't even know what that is. What we got there? 70, uh, 81 inches. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, that sounds right. 81 inches of screen real estate. How do you manage that? Are, are, are they on? It looks like two of them are on stands. Uh, is one of them not on us? All three of them are on stands. Uh, one of them, the okay. stand is sort of hidden behind some uh, Ugmunk uh, analog products there. There you go. Since buying them, I have sometimes sort of wished I got the, the uh, Visa mount versions, uh, unfortunately, the studio displays are not as easy to switch back and forth between uh, feet and Visa mounts as the yeah. the Pro Display XDR is, well, for example. It's not even possible. You got to buy it at the time of purchase. You either get the Visa or you don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, th so they're all three on the height adjustable stands. Uh, also, all three nano texture. So I really went all in on those. Uh, you, right. you asked sort of how I use them. The, the the center one is the main display, obviously, and it almost always has either one uh, uh, one program running in full screen or two apps side by side. Uh, full screen is for stuff like uh, I do it a lot for Zoom or for Visual Studio Code. Side by side, I'll often have like a RSS reader on the left and Safari on the right or something like that. Uh, the two outer displays. 
I really get most of my mileage out of sort of the inside half of each of those, the half that's closer to the main display. And yeah. that always has usually supporting information of some sort. So, for example, if I'm in a Zoom meeting, I'll often have uh, IA Writer open on the inner half of one of those side displays for notes. I might have my email client or my calendar open on the other one, depending on what I'm doing. So that's sort of the stuff I want to be able to look over and use, but is not the main thing that I'm working on. And then the outer half of each of these displays is really for more, I don't know, passive information would be a good way to describe it. Uh, I'll often have like a calendar or a task manager running way off on one side or another. Stuff I don't need to be staring at all the time, but it's nice to be able to look over and glance at that. That was always my argument for second screens is a reference monitor. It's You can put reference information over there and it's available to you. You just have to look at it. Yeah. Now that I'm running Sonoma, I've sort of embraced the widget lifestyle a little bit, at least to try it out. So over on the left-hand half of my left monitor, I've got a bunch of widgets at the moment, uh, weather, uh, parcel for deliveries, uh, some of the calendar and battery widgets, a uh, nice photo widget just to, to show some of my pictures. Yeah. I go up and down on this. Like the, uh, uh, when I look at your setup, I am truly jealous. I mean, the idea of having that much screen real estate sounds amazing, but then I never seem to land with, I used to have three monitors and now I'm just to one, but uh, yeah, it really is nice looking setup, Chris. Uh, what, what, what are you using to manage windows on it? I mean, that's that's probably quite a project with three different screens to manage. It is, and I have never been able to find a dedicated window management tool that really handles three screens well. There are some of them that just seem to be single monitor only. Those yeah. that really have good support for external monitors really only seem to have the concept of like your primary and secondary monitors, just looking at two. So like a laptop plugged into an external display or something like that. Yeah. I've never found one which really does three well. So what I ended up doing was building my own window management system using Keyboard Maestro. Because yeah. Keyboard Maestro, of course, so endlessly, endlessly customizable, you can actually specify you know, monitor, I think they count from zero. So monitor zero, monitor one, monitor two. And really get exact towards when I do this key combination, I want this window on this screen in this spot. So that's really my main uh, window management tool is using uh, uh, keyboard shortcuts. I use the hyper key and uh, uh, sending uh, windows to different spots. Yeah, you can independently address each monitor with Keyboard Maestro pretty easily. And it's interesting because the way he did it um, there's different ways. Like you can address it as a monitor number or the sides. It's, it's, it's clever. Peter, uh, he's always got some good answers for that. And then you put everything on a, a, a low shelf as a lot of folks do these days. And then you're able to stack all your various stream decks and whatnot underneath it and have some nice clean space for mm -hmm. all those monitors. Even got room for home pods in there. Yeah, I mean, I, I need to be kept away from these multi-monitor people. It is very tempting. <laughs> Steven, you had to, but then you it didn't work out for you. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I kind of, I mean, I've got the studio display and the MacBook Pro. For my setup, two yeah. studio displays wasn't quite right, but I love yeah. the way this looks. Um, I do have a question about the, the Mac Studio, though. I know I had an M1 Mac Studio, and 
I at least was a, l- a little bothered by the noise. Can you hear yours? Is it an issue being out there on top of the desk? I don't find it an issue. Uh, I know a lot of people do, but I don't really notice it unless I lean down real Good. close to the the computer itself. Um, but don't really notice it in in day to day use. Good. Yeah, I think I think people I've talked to with the the M2 model they seem to have uh, seem to have addressed that. But you know, I had mine under the desk. But it's uh, I think I think from what I can tell, it's a little dependent on the model. Like. Maybe some are louder than others, which is kind of weird, but who really knows? Yeah, mine doesn't make any noise. I've got an M2, and I've got it on the desk, and not an issue at yeah. all. But you know, and that, but with the M1, you're right that that was a thing. The other thing you've got under there, uh, Chris. For, first of all, just acknowledge your Ugmunt collection because I have the same collection and I love them. Uh, but we've talked about that on the show enough lately. Um, you have a very strange keyboard that I'd never heard of before. Yeah, this is the ZSA Moonlander. So to try and describe it to folks, it's a split keyboard. So two separate components, one for your right hand, uh, one for your left hand. So you can arrange them and tilt them different ways to try and get a a setup that's ergonomic for for you as an individual. Uh, The other feature of this keyboard is it's... um, orthogonal it's the the keys are stacked directly on top of each other so for example the index finger key on my right hand uh there is u j and m just directly in a stack whereas if you look on a a normal keyboard uh they're all slightly offset and the idea here is this is supposed to mean you don't have to wiggle your fingers left and right quite as much as you're typing it's just bending them up and down and Honestly, I don't know if I notice a huge difference in sort of hand fatigue or RSI with that. And it does take some getting used to. But uh, uh, I am able to, after a a week or so when I got this keyboard, I was able to type using the the slightly different arrangement and can switch back and forth between that and like a laptop keyboard that's got a more conventional setup without too much trouble. Yeah, that is really strange to me. I mean, I don't know. That would be so odd because I've, I've never typed on one where everything is lined up like that. Yeah, there's definitely a, a, an ad- initial adjustment period uh, that you have to get used to. And the uh, and it's got a, a set of function ro- uh, keys below the thumbs, it looks like, but it doesn't have function keys above the the QWERTY, if that makes It's got the number keys, but you don't have the function row. So I'm guessing you can access that some alternative way. Yeah, this the keyboard is pretty much endlessly programmable. That's the the other feature. You can actually flash new uh new key arrangements and custom key arrangements to it. So, for example, I've got all those keys down by my thumbs on either side are modifier keys for the most part. There's also yeah. space and delete and enter, but uh uh command uh control option. Uh, I also have a hyper key down there. Uh, so those are my, my modifiers. Um, and then you can program the, the rest of the layout, however you want it and use a keycap puller and, and rearrange the, the keycaps themselves to, to follow what you've programmed in there. Uh, they also have a feature where you can have multiple layers. So if you toggle or hold down a particular key that then changes all the other keys on the keyboard. Uh, and for example, I do some of that. If I hold down a certain key, it, transforms a, 
uh, section of my keyboard into a number pad, for instance, or uh, it uh, changes it into some keys I've got dedicated to uh, use some of those keyboard maestro window movement uh, yeah. keyboard maestro shortcuts. So if I hold down a particular key, I've got like a row of six keys above it that just go left half of the left monitor, right half of the left monitor, left half of the main monitor, right half of the main monitor, and so on. And it makes it real easy to send uh, windows wherever I want them. Well, it is a trippy-looking keyboard. And, uh, gang, if you're looking for an interesting keyboard, this is the one. You can also, I know, um, tilt it up on all sorts of different angles. So if you're looking for just the right ergonomic angle, they have it there. And am I seeing right? Is there a, is there a mouse joystick as well on this thing? Uh, no, this one does not have any sort of uh, pointing device. I, I use okay. a, a trackpad and a MSX Master for that. Okay. All right. Well, I dig it. And then you, and the shelf as well. Uh, this has come up several times with guests re- recently, and we've been asked by the, the audience members, what's your shelf? I mean, there's a lot of different uh, companies now making like solid shelves. You have a, an extra wide one. It's carrying a lot of weight with those three monitors on it. Did you find something special for that? Uh, not really. This is a two by 12 from Home Depot with a couple of Ikea legs screwed to it. Perfect. Perfect. I like that. All right. So home built. And then, and then you also have a pretty fancy uh, video conferencing setup, it looks like. I do. Uh, this is some investments I made during the pandemic when it was clear I'd be spending a lot of time on Zoom and Microsoft Teams. Uh, I'm using a little mirrorless camera. This one's a Canon uh, EOS M200, which is their small interchangeable lens camera. I've got a fairly wide, fairly fast lens on there, so I get some nice, you know, genuine bokeh effect, so it blurs the background slightly. And then that's hooked up to the Elgato CamLink 4K, which basically takes HDMI in one end and outputs uh, the other end is USB, and it fakes being a webcam to Mac sure. OS. Uh, and that that works great. Uh, the the one thing I've run into is it really does want to be plugged directly into your Mac. Uh, plugging it into hubs does not always work, so it does take up one of the ports on the back of my uh, Mac Studio. But you have plenty. Uh, I don't know about plenty. I'm actually I use a USB A hub that is almost filled up, and then quite a few of the USB C ports on the back of these uh, uh, studio displays. Gotcha. Yeah. And then I've got a pair of Elgato Keylight Airs. That's their smaller uh, programmable sort of studio light, really made for streamers, but it works great to get nice, uh, good, even lighting. Uh, That was actually something I upgraded before I did the webcam, and it probably made a, a bigger difference than the fancy camera did. Yeah, I've got I've got one of those behind my studio display, basically exactly where yours are. And it's amazing what a little bit of lighting will do for a video call. Cause otherwise you're basically lit either not at all or by the display, which looks really flat and kind of bad. And what I've learned to do mainly cause I wear glasses, you can really see like if I'm moving things around on the display when I'm supposed to be listening to your meeting. And so I, tur- I turned the, uh, the display brightness way down so that, Elgato, Elgato light is really the only thing lighting me up and it, it looks pretty good. Yeah. 
The other trick, Stephen, is they get non-reflective glasses. They they make that. Yeah, know? that's you know so much stuff. That's uh, too complicated. <laughs> I just turn my brightness down. Yeah, I got them when I lived in an apartment with floor to ceiling windows that were just to the left of my desk. So if I didn't have some on desk lighting, I basically looked like Two Face. The entire right side of my face was in deep shadow compared to the left side. So getting lighting and getting lighting where I could control the right and left sides individually was mm-hmm. really important to to not having that sort of look. Yeah. Well, it's a nice setup, Chris, and uh, we'll put a picture in the show notes. Everybody can check it out. You also have a home server. I do. I've got uh, the last Intel Mac Mini, the 2018 model, uh, and it's connected up to a big OWC uh, RAID array. Uh, They make these essentially a box that'll take uh, a bunch of drives, and they have some software that will view those as one big redundant array. Basically gives me a huge pot of storage, but one that is actually directly connected to a Mac, which makes certain things like uh, remote backup uh, and administration easier than if you're using something like a a Drobo or a Synology. Uh, Not that those can't be good, but it's obviously... I'm used to and know how to administer a Mac, whereas uh, one of those Linux-based uh, network-attached storage devices is is just a different animal you have to deal with. Yeah, and especially if your primary Mac is a notebook. I mean, I know we just talked about your amazing desktop setup, but it, it's also just really handy to have a Mac always on, right? If you got Hazel rules or something else running or, you know, using it for smart home stuff, like it's, I agree with you. I think if you if you want a home server like this, Making a Mac the centerpiece is totally the way to go. Do you got any other Macs? I do have an M2 MacBook Air. That's my uh, computer I take with me when I travel or when I'm uh, up in Oregon for the summer being a a river guide. And it is, without doubt, the best laptop I have ever owned. I'm just totally in in love with that machine. Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm with you there, buddy. Yeah, I actually moved to the Air from the 14-inch MacBook Pro. I bought the the first uh, Apple Silicon MacBook Pros when they came out. And what I found was it was a great computer for what I was doing at that time. Uh, it was when we were just starting to go back to work after the pandemic. So I was doing things like plugging it into monitors in my cubicle at work, uh, plugging it into HDMI ports to show in uh, video and conference rooms, that sort of thing. But once I left the the nine to five job and switched to guiding in the summer and working completely remotely in the off season, I didn't really have call to do any of those things with a laptop. So I uh, sort of upgraded or downgraded or side graded, however you want to describe it, from the the MacBook Pro to the Air, and the Air really fulfills all my needs that I've got for a mobile computer uh, even better than the Pro did. And like me, you've got a studio, so you can do heavy lifting at that machine. And mm-hmm. in a pinch, the MacBook Air does fine, too. It just takes a little longer. Yeah, I mean, I, I do a little bit of work for the off-season job during the summer when I've got some days off, and it handled everything I needed to do uh, in a, a much smaller and mo- more mobile package than my desktop setup. This episode of MPU is made possible by 1Password. 1Password is the password manager for your Mac, iPhone, iPad, PC, the web, and beyond. One of my favorite things about 1Password is that I can mix and match account types. 
So I have a couple of one password for Teams accounts. Got one at Relay FM and one for another part of an, another organization I'm a part of. But I, I can also have one password for families. So my wife and I can share passwords. And it's all in one app for me. But even within those different accounts, I can set up different vaults. So at Relay FM, there's stuff that only Mike and I need. And then there's other passwords or credentials that other people may need. And it's very easy to manage all of it. And because 1Password is everywhere and really integrated with Apple software, it doesn't get in the way. So I can log in with Face ID or Touch ID no matter where I am on macOS, iOS, or iPadOS. It even works for two-factor authentication. We all know we should be using that, right? But look, getting text messages with six-digit codes, there's a better way. I store that stuff in 1Password right alongside my regular passwords. And when I go to autofill somewhere, it autofills that information as well. So it's really seamless, and it means that that extra security doesn't slow me down. Head on over to onepasswordcom slash MPU to learn more and to sign up for a free 30-day trial. You'll get 20% off going to onepasswordcom slash MPU. All right, Chris, let's talk about technology on the river. So you have this amazing setup, but then you head out to the river and none of that comes with you except, I guess, the MacBook Air and some of your mobile devices. Um, what do you bring when you go out to be a river guide? What's on you? So when I actually am out on the river going on the water, the only real bit of Apple technology I have with me is my iPhone. Uh, up until recently, that was a iPhone, iPhone 14 Pro. Uh, I got the iPhone 15 Pro Max, which I'm still a little leery about. This is my first uh, Pro Max size phone. Uh, so I'm still getting used to the, the extra size. I'm not entirely accustomed to that yet. But the 5X camera was just, that was the, the killer feature, the real selling point for me. Taking pictures on the river, which is one of the big things I use the phone for out there. I, a lot of times, wanted more reach than the 3X lens. If you're taking a picture of folks in another raft or maybe trying to get a picture of some uh, wildlife on shore, the, the 3X lens just was not enough reach. So this uh, uh, 5X tetraprism lens, once I heard the announcement about that, I, I was pretty much an automatic upgrade and I'll mm -hmm. just have to deal with the, the larger size. Now, are you doing anything uh, in terms of a special case? I mean, you're using a, a glass and, and titanium phone um, and even with the 14 Pro, a lot of glass there as well. Uh, something that floats, something with a lanyard on it. Like what, what's your move there? So I've got a OtterBox uh, Defender case on there. Uh, it's very rugged, very big and chunky, which makes the big phone even bigger. Yeah. Uh, I also run a, a screen protector as well. Okay. And the nice thing about the Defender is it does have a little uh, hole for a lanyard. And I use that uh, when I'm on the river. Uh, I actually, this phone rides in the pocket of my PFD, my personal flotation device or, or life jacket. And when I'm on, actually on the water, I have a lanyard that clips into it. So it's uh, got, it's like coiled like an old fashioned telephone cord for the portion of our audience who are old enough to remember those. Uh, so that uh, keeps the phone attached to me. I actually saw another guide who had a phone in a, a pocket on, on his life jacket and bent over on the river and fell out and plop. And that was the last we ever saw of it. 
Yeah. So, you know, mo- modern phones are uh, very waterproof, and I put mine to the test quite a bit, but they do not float. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Titanium is light, but not that light. It wasn't there a story about Steve Jobs, like, taking an, an iPod, and throwing it in an aquarium, like in his office, and if it bubbled, he would get mad at the engineers because there was empty space in the middle. <laughs> Have you heard I've, this story? I've heard that, but who knows if that's true or not? I don't know. If not, even if it isn't true, I love it. I love the story. <laughs> yeah, Cult of Max. I have a, a link in the show notes. Cult of Mac has a story about it. I'll I'll put that in there for people to to see. Well, apparently, even if it does bubble a little bit, it still sinks. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so what about uh, what about software on the phone? I mean, you're you're working as a guide. Are there things that you need to keep up with on the phone? Is it just a camera? Kind of where does that fit in with the work and where what software are you using there? So aside from the camera, the main app I actually use on the river is Obsidian. I use that for note taking. Obsidian is actually one of the the biggest sort of technology tools involved in guiding for me. Uh, I take a lot of notes during each trip. I have sort of a template for that and uh, take notes each day. And then after the trip, I'll clean things up and it'll eventually make its way into day one because of how nice that is at resurfacing memories, but also just lives in the Obsidian database and has a lot of information on who else was, what other guides were on the trip, how many guests we had, uh, what, uh, where we camped, uh, sort of notable incidents that happened uh, during that trip. I also have notes on a lot of the rapids, a lot of the places that we camp, uh, just to to record information uh, uh, that would be useful on future trips. So I've got a big Obsidian database there. It also has a lot of how-to stuff or stuff I've learned from various trainings, whether it's uh, guide training, medical training, uh, even the you have to get a food handler's card because you're cooking for the guests, any of that training, I've got a bunch of notes in Obsidian. I don't usually consult these notes when I'm on the river, but just building these up and having them available for reference, I found was really helpful in in learning all this information that you have to, to master to be a guide. Also, probably the process of making the notes allows you to internalize it, I would guess. Are you putting uh, attachments in Obsidian? A lot of people use Obsidian mainly with text, but it does support attachments. And I'm thinking about like your food handling card and like I would imagine some of the pictures you take. Does that stuff go into Obsidian as well? Uh, Not much. There's a couple of documents in there. For instance, the Bureau of Land Management produced a a real good survey of campsites along the Rogue River uh, about five years ago. So I have that in there. Uh, There are some other sort of reference documents like that. But uh, most other stuff uh, ends up living in iCloud or uh, or other places. And uh, how are you syncing it? Uh, Obsidian, I let's see. I think I'm using the iCloud sync at the moment, and that's been uh, been fine for what I've been doing. What what is the internet coverage like on your trips? Is there any? Oh, there there is no coverage out there. It's uh, uh, entirely outside of cell range from well before you get to where we put in to. Uh, well, you know, we're almost back to to base by the time we get uh, get coverage again. So there is no no data service anywhere out there. You're all if it's not on the phone when you started, that's all you got. 
Yeah. So cloud-based data sources are a bad idea. And mm-hmm. are you using the new downloadable maps feature or did you have some other solution for that? Uh, I actually use have an app called Far Out. It's a, a app. They mostly actually do long distance hiking trails, things like the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail. But they also have a few uh, uh, river sort of uh, river sections in there, including the the section of the rogue that I guided on last summer. Uh, so that essentially has downloaded maps with uh, GPS. You know, it'll show you where you are. It'll also show uh, info on camps and rapids and other other points of interest along the way. Uh, so that's really a, what I've got for mapping on the phone. Uh, honestly, most of my navigation is uh, is using uh, paper maps. Um, there's a, a real nice uh, a river guide that I like, uh, a river guidebook that I like that has you know waterproof paper and shows where where everything is and. Honestly, that's easier to consult on the on the river than pulling out the phone. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. What what is the? Um, I would imagine battery life is always a problem out there. What are the types of solutions you've seen that you use and other guides and and guests use that that makes sense for a long term trip like that? So number one is to try and minimize the battery consumption to to start with. So I always, whenever I'm going out on the river, the phone and the watch go into airplane mode. Essentially, sure. there is no cell coverage out there. There's no sense burning uh, electrons, firing up the uh, cellular radios to look for a signal that's not going to be there, and low power mode. And I find when I do both of those, I can get through even a five-day trip just charging the phone and the watch once each. Uh, and I have some uh, little uh, USB batteries uh, that are are good for that. Uh, uh, one with a, a Apple Watch charging puck built into the battery uh, to charge the watch, and one with a built-in. Well, it was a built-in Lightning cable for my old phone. I actually just bought a new one with a built-in USB-C cable for the 15 Pro. Yeah. The the one trick there is when you charge the phones up, it will automatically kick them out of low power mode. Yeah, uh, you know, lo- the low power mode expects you're using this. Oh, you had a, a long day at a conference or a long flight or something. You just need a little bit to get you till evening when you're going to plug it in and be back back to normal. It's not really they didn't build this feature with people who are spending five days in the wilderness in mind. So on the phone, I actually have a personal automation. One one of the triggers for a personal automation is when battery increases above 18%, do whatever. And so when the battery goes above 80%, uh, the phone turns off low power mode, and then I have a personal automation that will turn low power mode back on. So that keeps the phone in low power mode uh, without me having to do anything. Uh, The trick there is making sure this only does it when I'm on the river. I actually have it look for a calendar event in a certain calendar that tells it, oh yeah, Chris is out on the, the river today. We should keep the phone in, in low power mode. So you're doing an if uh, command, probably in shortcuts to look for the calendar entry and uh, as part of the automation? Yeah. Nice, nice. That's super clever. Unfortunately, it doesn't work on the watch. So I have to remember to flip the watch back into low power mode after I charge it or just don't charge it up above 80%. Yeah. Do you get nervous like when it gets down to like 20%? I mean, 
I'm so used to it always being above 50%. I think going two or three days, I would want to charge it anyway. I wouldn't be able to help myself. Yeah, I've got a, well, at least with my, my, the 14 pro, I had a pretty good sense of how much, uh, battery I would use each day. So 50% wouldn't really be worrying me if it gets below 40%. I'm starting to get nervous. If it gets below 30%, I definitely know I need to charge it, uh, you know, at the neck, the next night. Do you need to use it to take a lot of pictures when you're out in the river? Yeah, that's the the primary use for it is is taking pictures. How do you do that when you're in the middle of a rapid? I mean, I mean, how do you hold on to it? How do you frame it and take a picture? You don't do it in the middle of the rapid, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, but it, when there's a, a place to stop and pause and you can, you know, I usually you tuck the oar handles under your knees. You can get your hands free and, and snap a picture. I will say I am really looking forward. The other selling point of the i15 Pro Max to me was the action button because that first thing I did was hook that up to the camera and being able to snap a quick picture without having to use wet fingers on a touch display is uh, uh, something I'm really looking forward to. I think that's going to make things a lot lot easier. Yeah, you do. Because I'm a big fan of using uh, shortcut automation on that. But I think for someone like you, you just really want it to activate the camera. You don't need it for anything else. Yep. How do you manage tasks on the river? And I know that sounds like a silly question, but I know that you do manage tasks on the river because you're in charge of people. Yeah, I'll be honest. When I'm physically out on the river, I don't do much, certainly not much electronic task management. It's really you, you know, each trip is the same. So you develop a, a sense of what needs to be done. And that's really... When you start working for a new company or on a new river, that seems to be one of the big things to sort of accommodate yourself to is how they do things and what things need to be done when. And you've really just got to internalize that. Most of my task management is actually dedicated to the spaces between trips where you may have a couple of days or even just one day or even being going out immediately the next day. And so you've got to do some prioritization. What, what do I really need to get done between now and the next time I'm off on the river? Uh, and I, th- this may sound odd, but the, the, te- the tool I have found most useful for that is actually IA Writer, which mm-hmm. is a cross-platform markdown text editor. And it supports the usual markdown syntax of, you know, you do a, a unordered list, so dash, space, open bracket, close bracket, and it interprets that those brackets as a, a checkbox. And so when I get off the river, I'll, okay, what, what do I need to do before the next time I, I go back out and put, make a list in IA Writer, and I either get that stuff done or the list gets tossed out. It really doesn't have the kind of ongoing long-term task management that, uh, that I have in the past or, or do in the off-season. It's really get it done before the next time you go out or start from scratch uh, after that next trip. Is any of that information shared with other people? I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, there's, there's other guides and it's, it's a, you win and have this experience. Um, what are some communication tools or is that an issue when you're out there? Not really in terms of, of task management. Uh, one of the big things in, in terms of guides is actually the way they do calendaring, because obviously everybody's real interested on 
which trip uh, you're going out next on and who's going to be on that trip with you. And they actually, the, the place I worked last year at least, actually used Google Sheets for that. And that may seem like a, an odd choice for a calendar, but they have a, a spreadsheet with one column for each day of the, the summer. And uh, then sort of a, a set of rows up top. We, we had up to three trips out at once, two trips on the Rogue and one down on the, the lower Klamath. And so there's a set of rows up top that lists who's on the number one rogue trip, another set of rows that lists who's on the number two rogue trip, and a set of rows that lists who's on the the Klamath trip. Uh, So that uh, Google Sheet was uh, probably one of the most frequently accessed things on my my devices during the summer as I looked in there to see where I'd be working and who I'd be working with. Well, Chris, we planned Mac Power Users for, what, 15 years in a Google Sheet, so... Yeah. I don't think you're off base there. Though I hear you're switching to Notion. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> we we got a text and we talked on the show about, well, what if guests can't get into the outline? We got a text from a mutual friend who said, if your guests can't figure out how to look at a Notion outline, then they shouldn't be a Mac Power Users guest. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? That's kind of a good point. <laughs> this episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Backblaze. Unlimited cloud backup for Macs and PCs for just $9 a month. Backblaze are the folks looking after your digital data with their unlimited computer backup for Macs, PCs, and businesses that starts at just $9 a month. You can back up all of your data with Backblaze. Docs, music, photos, videos, drawings, contracts, projects, and more. And you can easily protect business data through a centrally managed admin. But it's not just about protecting yourself from data loss. Sometimes you need access to a file on the go, and the Backblaze mobile app for iOS and Android makes it super easy to access all of your backed-up files from anywhere. They even have a restore-by-mail option where Backblaze will ship you a hard drive with all your data on it. Once you've restored your documents, you can send the hard drive back for a full refund. Plus, you never have to worry about accidentally deleting a file again. Backblaze offers a free one-year file retention or upgrade to have deleted files retained forever. It really is a weight off your mind knowing the stuff is just handled. And Backblaze has restored over 55 million files for customers. These folks know their stuff. I've been a Backblaze subscriber now for six or seven years. I tried one of their competitors. I wasn't happy. I switched over to Backblaze, and I'm very happy. I've got a gigantic drive on my Mac, and Backblaze backs it all up for $9 a month. If the roof falls in on my house, I will not lose any data. This is also a great service to send kids off to college with, because you know they're not going to be backing their stuff up. But if you set up Backblaze, it's happening without them even realizing it's happening, and it will save them. You can get a free, fully featured, no credit card required 15-day trial at backblaze.com MPU. And if you own a business, click on the business backup and navigation to start backing up your business data. And what I said earlier is true. If you're sending someone off to college, get them hooked up on Backblaze as well. They will thank you for it later. Backblaze is recommended by the New York Times, Inc. Magazine, Macworld, PC World, LifeWire, Wired, Tom's Guide, 9to5Mac, and more. Both Stephen and I are longtime subscribers. Don't be that person that forgot to back up their important files. Backblaze has got your back. So sign up for that 15-day trial with no credit card required at backblaze.com slash MPU. That's B-A-C-K-B-L-A-Z-E dot com slash MPU for your fully featured 15-day free trial. 
and you can let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Go there, play around with it, and start protecting yourself from potential data disasters. And our thanks to Backblaze for saving us from countless data disasters and their support of the Mac Power Users. Chris, one of the things that Apple has really talked about the last few years is their device's ability to help you in an emergency situation. And since you spend a lot of time off the grid and, you know, doing uh, exciting, maybe sometimes dangerous things, you know, like the perfect person to, to talk through these things. Um, I want to start with Satellite SOS. This was announced last year with the iPhone 14, and it continues in the iPhone 15 line, where if you have no service, but you have a, a view to the sky, you can use a satellite and some pre-canned messages and get in touch with emergency uh, help. What is your view on on tools like this? I also know that there are some dedicated devices like this, like, a, you know, satellite phones and some other things. Uh, do you have any experience with these? And where do you think Apple stands in, in this market? So the most rafting companies and, and the ones that I work for, they use both satellite phones and uh, satellite text messaging devices. Uh, the, the most common one there is the Garmin InReach. Uh, Garmin is, well, is a GPS company, but they make devices that also do text satellite messaging. They're both useful for different things. In emergency situations, though, there are actually a lot of advantages to the text communication. Uh, you don't have uh, you know messages getting garbled or you lose contact halfway through the call and they don't get uh, everything you were trying to say. Uh, the, the text messaging services like the, the inReach and uh, the, the Apple features are really, they're atomic. You either, the message, whole message goes through or it doesn't. So there's less chance of miscommunication or mishearing something. So text messages are definitely, I, I wouldn't view them, view text communication as second class in an emergency. It really does mm. have a, a lot of advantages. The Apple satellite SOS feature was definitely a big selling point for me on the, uh, when the, what was that? The iPhone 14 14. pro came out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I have not had to use the SOS portion of that, but I have used the share your location via satellite part of it. Uh, and that has, has worked well when I've done it. I also do carry a Garmin inReach mini two, which is a very small, uh, not much bigger than a pack of gum, I guess you would say, size uh, uh, GPS device. Uh, it connects to your phone via Bluetooth. So you actually preferably do all your typing uh, and reading messages on the phone while the, the inReach just handles the satellite communication. The advantage it has at the moment over the iPhone, besides being a little more rugged and being a dedicated device, is that you can send uh, any text message you want. It well, you can type in a phone number and send a text to any cell phone uh, and get texts back from them if they reply to the, the number that they see your text coming from. So you can use it for things beyond just the emergency, emergency things. Uh, some of my colleagues use them to keep in touch with significant others. You can also use it just to pass information back and forth, for example, between us on the river and our management or let someone know, oh, hey, we're not going to be back for another day or something like that. More flexibility than just Apple's uh, emergency-only system. Yeah, that's really a nice technology. I wasn't aware of it, but 
it makes total sense if you're going to be off the grid a long time. Yeah, it's sort of been a, a gradual progression to get to this point where you have sort of the free two-way texting. Uh, there were previous devices that uh, uh, could do emergency messages, but only had a one-way communication. You couldn't have a, a conversation. So this is really what we have now represents a lot of progress. And I would totally expect to see that sort of two-way text communication uh, come to to phones in the future. I think uh, uh, Starlink has already announced that they're going to be offering that with some Android phones in another uh, year or so. And I I would expect that, uh, wouldn't be surprised if Apple does the same in another couple of years. Yeah, I'm sure they're already working on it. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the logical next step. The, uh, the other feature, I know you have the Apple Watch Ultra and one of the big selling points in you know the advertising initial push of it was that it's good for wayfinding. And uh, given as all my hikes are local and there's it's it's more traffic than a freeway with mountain bikers and other hikers, I don't really <laughs> need it. But the um, but I assume you probably do find use for some of those features. What how's it going? I've played around with them a little bit. Uh, they're obviously. The big limitation there is I think right now that's a sort of a day hike only feature just because anytime, you know, I, I go hiking and backpacking with my Apple watch all the time, but I rarely use the navigation or work, uh, workout features like their hiking workout. If I'm on a multi-day trip, cause it just burns sure. battery too fast, even on the ultra, uh, I'm trying to, to stretch the battery out as long as I can. And these, these features where it's, looking at your location or your heart rate uh, very often uh, are really only useful for me if I'm only going to be out there for the day and I'm going to be back someplace where I can can charge that evening. Uh, but I have played around with it a bit, and it's definitely a useful feature if you need to, to, uh, to backtrack along your route. I have a good friend who does a lot of off-the-grid hiking, and she was looking at Garmin and, and the Ultra and uh, – my recommendation was if you get the ultra, just get one of those solar chargers. You can get them, you can hang it off the back of your pack and it can charge the battery during the day. And at night you can just, you could charge your watch every night that way and not have to worry about it or just get a big battery if you're, if you're not going away too long. But yeah, I, I do think that's an interesting dynamic, right? A lot of people who do this type of adventuring, are afraid of the battery life situation just so they don't actually use the features that Apple pushes on some of this stuff. Yeah, there's definitely a trade-off there. And uh, most most of my trips are short enough that a, a battery is a, a better bet than a solar panel. But if you're out there for long enough, the, the solar is uh, uh, obviously has, a, has an advantage. Well, I would ask you about the crash detection, but the only one of us that's experienced that is Steven. Hey. But... <laughs> <laughs> it works but it worked right <laughs> it did work yeah yeah when i was in my accident in the spring uh you know i had an iphone 14 pro max and an apple watch ultra and they were you know they talked to each other and the watch was going off and um it went off so in my accident i got hit from behind i hit a tree and then rolled over in the truck and it was going off before the truck rolled over like it it knew uh, what was going on and 
it was a very disorienting time. And like, if you hooked it to a lie detector test, I'm not sure I could tell you if it actually called emergency services or, or if I stopped it in time because the thing's going nuts, right? Like it's vibrating. The screen is red. It's making a bunch of loud noise. Uh, it's trying to wake you up, really, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if I had been unconscious, I, it, it, it definitely would have gotten my attention, probably. Um, and I think out of the three, wayfinding, satellite, SOS, and crash detection, that's the one that most people, you know, God forbid if you need any of them. But if you do, the crash detection may be the most common. And uh, at least if you drive. And, you know, I feel better knowing that my wife has... Uh, an Apple actually one reason I upgraded her Apple watch last year was for crash detection. Uh, I just gave my dad, my old 14 pro max y'all. He was on an iPhone seven still. I thought he was on an SE three. It's like, Nope, that's an iPhone seven. And uh, so I gave him the 14 pro max. What an update. <laughs> I texted him last yeah, night. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. how's the new phone? He's like, this thing is amazing. It's like, yeah, you move forward like eight years, but <laughs> I feel better knowing that, you know, He's got now a phone that has crash detection. Just puts me at ease a little bit. So I'm super excited that Apple is going down this road because, look, the truth is we have these devices with us all the time, right? We're talking about, you know, Chris blasting down a river with a bunch of people and he's got his phone there with him, right? We don't go anywhere without them. The watch is literally strapped to your wrist. And so it's, it's very exciting to me that in addition to the health stuff and the fitness stuff that Apple's also looking you know, with personal safety, you know, they had fall detection. That was, I think the first one uh, several years ago now. Yeah, it works. And hopefully you never need it, but if you do, it's there for you. And I think that's, I think that's really cool. Yeah. You know, I think David mentioned earlier about me going out and doing potentially dangerous things. One of the things I try and keep in mind is probably the most dangerous part of any of these trips is the drive to or from the put in or to or from the trailhead. Yeah. Uh, that's really we, we don't like to think about it, but that's more dangerous than hiking or, or whitewater rafting is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, objectively driving is kind of terrifying. Like we, you know, we don't think about it, but it uh, it is. And yeah, I mean, over time, as they add more things to this, you know, we're going to kind of have this, this bubble of protection around us, right? An iPhone or an Apple Watch is not going to stop something bad from happening, but it lets you get in touch with people who can help even on your own, right? Like even if you are unable to respond, well, once that countdown ends, you're going to get, uh, you're going to get con, you know, in contact with somebody, just your device on its own. Uh, that's all super important. And, you know, Apple plays those like <laughs> tearjerker videos at their events. Sometimes like my life was saved by this, or my watch tell- told me that my heart rate was doing something weird. I went to a doctor and turns out it is all that's fantastic. And, um, Uh, it's cool to hear stories from somebody who's got, you know, real experience with it and is using it out, you know, the way that Apple talks about it, right? Like going down a river, being a river guy, like you're just ripe to be in an Apple video at some point. Hopefully nothing terrible happens, but if it does, Apple will want to reenact it with a camera. This episode of MPU is brought to you by Clean My Mac X. Junk files, hung processes, and malicious apps can slow down even the latest, most powerful machines. And maintaining your Mac, whether old or new, is essential for smooth macOS performance. You may be getting ready to move to macOS Sonoma. It's been out for a little while, things are looking good. Well, now's a great time to make sure that everything is running nice and smoothly. 
CleanMap Mac X is an all-in-one Mac maintenance tool that can take care of old junk, faulty apps, malware, and more in an efficient, aesthetically pleasing, hassle-free way. You can even use their menu bar app to monitor your Mac's health, CPU load, and more. CleanMyMac X has been downloaded nearly 30 million times over the last 15 years, and it really is a must-try for any Mac user. One of my favorite things about CleanMyMac X is that all these tools are in one place and it is efficient and aesthetically pleasing and hassle-free it's really easy to understand what it's doing when it's going to do it you can even set up reminders so it says hey time to check out clean my mac x let's do a scan let's make sure everything is good all mpu listeners will get five percent off by checking out the link in the show notes or by going to macpaw.app slash mpu that's m-a-c-p-a-w macpaw.app slash mpu so, Chris, uh, there is an off-season for river guide work. And uh, when you're not doing that, as you mentioned earlier, you do some development work. And then you're back at your cool three-monitor setup and uh, space keyboard. Moon keyboard? What's it called again? The moon? Moonlander. Such a good name. The Moonlander. You got the Moonlander. You got the screens. You're ready to go. Uh, tell us a little bit about the tools you use to do that. The company I work for writes its software in a language called Julia, which is a bit of a, a niche language. For folks who are have never heard of it but know a bit about programming, it kind of fits in the same category as R or some of the more scientific communi- computing applications you'd use with Python or MATLAB, uh, but uh, definitely smaller and less known than those. Uh, but it fits what we're trying to do for, fairly well. And to be honest, there was a, our previous CTO, they're really like Julia, so that's probably has a lot to do with why we use it. Uh, I do most of my development in Visual Studio Code, uh, which is a very capable free uh, code editor. It is not very Mac-like. And if I was making the decision without any other considerations, I'd probably end up using Panic Nova or BB Edit or one of these very Mac uh, oriented text editors, but Visual Studio Code has the best tooling for Julia, you know, being a niche language, it's not as widely supported as say Python is. Uh, it's also what everybody else in my company is using. So, uh, there are some advantages, uh, to having exactly the same setup, the same software, the same plugins helps avoid, you know, it works on my machine, uh, type problems. So, even though it's not the most Mac-like experience, it does. it's probably the best tool for getting the job done. Uh, I sort of make up for that a little bit by using some very Mac-like support software. I use the Tower Git client, which is a software for uh, communicating with Git repositories. Uh, we use GitHub, uh, and it provides a very Mac-like experience, uh, mm-hmm. which, which I enjoy. Also use a neat uh, diff tool called Kaleidoscope, uh, which uh, you use for comparing two different files, which is useful in in source control or trying to figure out where you screwed up a, a particular uh, particular program. <laughs> yeah, Kaleidoscope is is really cool. I mean, even if you're using something like Tower, which I agree with, is awesome and so Mac-like and the the free GitHub app, like it's fine, or you can do it from the command line, but Tower puts a really nice UI on all of it. But 
Kaleidoscope is remarkably useful. And it does, I mean, yes, you can like compare text files, you know, so you're looking at, at source code, but they do things like there's a menu bar app and you can drop content into it just from Finder. Like things you wouldn't think of when you think of a tool like this, but because they're on the Mac and they want it to be as Mac-like as possible, they they build all these things. Like Alfred workflow support. I mean, <laughs> they don't have to do that, but uh, I think it's really cool that they do. Yeah, I think every Git-based developer we talk to uses Kaleidoscope. I don't think we've ever had one that doesn't. What else, Chris? Uh, you also, when I'm programming, I spend a fair bit of time in the shell. And so I actually, rather than using the default, which I believe these days on Mac OS is ZSH, uh, I installed the fish shell. Uh, we can uh, blame B- Brett Terpstra for that, as with so <laughs> many things. He had a nice series on his, uh, his blog uh, a while back. And it's just got, it's a little more modern than some of these uh, older uh, Unix shells and has some nice customizability. So I just uh, like like playing with that. The work I do also has a, a geographic component. Often we're generating maps uh, of, uh, for example, potential pipeline routes for captured uh, CO2. Uh, I use a program called QGIS, which is an open source cross-platform uh, geographic information system software. So software for dealing with spatial data and making maps and that sort of thing. Uh, honestly, I'm not really using it to its full potential. I'm mostly using it to sort of sanity check the uh, output of uh, of the program's rewrite. But uh, it's nice to have a GIS tool that I can actually use on a Mac. Uh, previously, I used some of the commercial GIS tools, and those are all Windows only. Hmm. Uh, I do have a Windows laptop that the the uh, off-season job uh, paid for, uh, but thankfully there's basically only one piece of uh, optimization software I have to fire that up and and use the the Windows laptop for. Everything else I do, uh, I can do on the Mac. That's really cool because that has not always been the case when it comes to development, right? There There have been times or seasons where the Mac was sort of not a serious contender when it came to to some types of development. And I think things like Visual Studio Code in particular, like it's really nice cross-platform IDE. Yeah, not the most Mac-like thing in the world, but it opens the door for users who may have been unwilling to check out the Mac uh, before. And even with OS X being built on top of Unix and you get a lot of stuff, you know, kind of, quote unquote, for free with that, things like Fish and some of these other tools that can sit one layer above what Apple does, again, it kind of opens the door to to more possibilities. Chris, you've got all this gear, and I, I keep looking at this picture of your desk. I wish you hadn't sent it to me because it's so nice looking, but the um, <laughs> uh, how are you backing it all up? So I have a pretty comprehensive backup strategy. I've, I've, that's something I've embraced for a long time and probably originally came from listening to Mac power users back in the, the early days with uh, sure. uh, you and Katie. So I have at least four different backups using different methods. Uh, I have carbon copy cloner on all my machines and they get cloned to a, a local hard drive here. Uh, at one point, those would have been bootable backup clones, but of course... Yeah. Uh, the modern versions of Mac OS that getting a bootable backup really isn't possible. 
but I still think there's a real advantage to having a full exact copy of what's on my hard drive. I don't have to worry about something not uh, uh, not getting backed up or not having you know some obscure settings file that a program put in some weird spot. I can know I've got everything backed up on this SSD. Uh, I also use Time Machine. You know, that's the built-in tool, but it does have a lot of advantages. And recently, big quality of life upgrade was switching my Time Machine backup to an SSD. Uh, the, the costs have finally come down far enough that that's a, a reasonable choice, even when you have a, a big internal drive. So I've got a 8-terabyte uh, uh, Samsung SSD and a OWC enclosure. Uh, and that means I have totally banished spinning hard drives from my desk, which is a, a big quality of life upgrade for me. Mm-hmm. This is the way, you know, it really is. Well, I mean, it'll be the way everybody does it eventually, but right now you've got to be willing to bleed a little bit to get there. Cause it's still, it's still pretty expensive. A little bit, but not as much as you used to, you yeah. know, when I first considered doing this four or five years ago, I had a a hard drive that was a quarter the size of the one that's in this Mac studio. And I think getting a time machine drive, you know, you want the time machine drive to be bigger than your internal hard drive. Getting an SSD for a time machine would have been $3,000 or something like that. (laughs) Whereas I think I paid about 600 for the, the eight terabyte drive in the enclosure for, uh, uh, for this setup. And then you've got this attached Mac mini, right? Are you running backup through that? Yeah. So I, in, in it, at one point, I had gotten rid of the spinning hard drive on my desk by doing a network backup, originally to a Drobo and then to my uh, my Mac Mini home server. I never found that Time Machine over a network was very reliable. I always got much better results with a directly attached USB drive. Yeah. Uh, when I was doing it over the network, it seemed like three or four times a year, I'd get a message saying, yeah, your backup's hosed. We need to start over. What I finally ended up moving to for the over the network backup was a piece of software called Arc. And Arc is like the Swiss army knife of remote backup. Uh, They can go to, you know, Backblaze B2 or, uh, um, you know, Amazon's cloud storage service or many others that I hadn't even heard of. Uh, but they can also go to drives on your local network uh, via, uh, you know, either FTP or uh, some of the network drive sharing protocols. So I use Arc to back up my desktop to that big RAID array that's connected to the home server. Uh, and that uh, gives me uh, essentially a lot of the characteristics of, of Time Machine in terms of doing incremental backups uh, and being able to to keep past versions of stuff. Uh, Obviously, the user interface isn't quite as as slick as Apple's, but it does give me another place to store all of those without having a clicky spinning hard drive on my desktop. Sure. Is your Mac Mini, I'm assuming it's connected by by wire, or is it just wirelessly connected to your your main station? So both my my, my home networking setup is Eero-based. Uh, yeah. actually when I, when I got, I, I'm lucky enough to have fiber internet and I figured when I got it set up here, when I moved in, oh, they'll give me some horrible, you know, no name router. Uh, and then I'll have, I'll connect my Eero to that and have to deal with all the double NAT stuff. But they actually gave me a nice little Eero six as my home router. And I'm like, oh, wow, that was nice, nice. of them. 
So uh, it actually did prompt me to upgrade my Eero setup from uh, some older Eros to the Eero 6s. So uh, unfortunately, I do not have a wired connection because I don't want that Mac Mini in the same room as me. But what I do have is the Mac Studio is plugged into one Eero. Uh, and then the Mac Mini, which is in a closet in another bedroom, uh, is plugged into a, a separate Eero, and those two communicate wirelessly. So it's not quite as fast as I could do with a wired connection, but it's good enough for what I'm doing. I'm not trying to edit video that's on the the RAID connected to the, yeah. the Mac Mini. For stuff like backups, this works just fine. And backups, too, the, the first one is a big one, right? But then you're doing, I would assume, incremental backups after that. So that that helps a lot with the with the bandwidth needs as well. Definitely. Are you doing any offsite? So then I also, the, the RAID array also gets backed up itself. I have some uh, just USB hard drives that get plugged in there and suck down the data from the, the RAID array. So I have a couple of local copies. And then all of these computers I have Backblaze subscriptions for, for offsite backup. Uh, and that is one of the advantages of having a directly attached drive. You know, that RAID array just looks like uh, an external drive to Mac OS and to Backblaze. So Backblaze yeah. will back it up on their, uh, you know, one price, unlimited, all-you-can-eat uh, backup subscription. So I am one of the people who is um, abusing that, uh, at least for the, the one computer. Uh, on the other hand, my my laptop doesn't have a whole lot of data on it, so I'm I'm paying for three subscriptions. One of them is huge. The other two are are more reasonable amounts of uh, of uh, backup data. I mean, full disclosure, they happen to be a sponsor today. We didn't know that when when Chris put this in the outline, but the um, but it is it is really convenient, you know, to to just turn it on. It is, and I've had good results with them. I've never had to do a sort of full restore from Backblaze. Uh, but I have actually used them, uh, for instance, when I when I went off to Oregon to go guiding this summer, there was a document that I needed that I did not have on my laptop. And I made the decision that I would shut down all my Macs here at home for the summer and not leave them running uh, just for remote access. But I was able to go into the Backblaze web interface, you know, type in my, my passkey to, to decrypt the drive, and pull that file off of the backup. Uh, so that really did uh, did save my bacon uh, during the summer. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Indeed. Go to indeed.com slash MPU and join more than 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. What's a game where nobody wins? It's the waiting game. And when it comes to hiring, don't wait for great talent to find you. Find them first with Indeed. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, you can use their powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. According to Indeed data, US Indeed's hiring platform really is great because it matches you with quality candidates instantly. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements, making it an unbelievably powerful hiring platform. 
delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com MPU. Offer is good for a limited time. So claim that $75 credit now at Indeed.com MPU. That's I-N-D-E-E-D dot com slash M-P-U to support the show by saying you heard about it here on this podcast. Terms and conditions do apply, but do you need to hire? You need Indeed. Our thanks to Indeed for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. Chris, this has been so much fun, and we like to end these uh, interview episodes with some favorite apps and services, some things that maybe we didn't get to mention further up in the in the outline. And you got some really cool stuff in here. The first one is uh, something that I have not really played with, but I've been a, a little bit aware of. Uh, can you tell me about Triage 2? So Triage is a mail app with some very specific functionality. It you know connects to your uh, IMAP mail client, just like any other uh, any other mail client. But rather than reading email in there, what it gives you is a series of cards for each message, and you either swipe left to archive it or delete it. I have it set up to archive, or swipe right to keep it in your inbox. Uh, and this was very important for me because I, I get back to for after five days on the river, and you know quite a bit of email has built up. So triage is real useful for going through that very quickly and just getting rid of the stuff that, I mean, it may not be spam, but it's not super important for me to look at or maybe isn't relevant after five days. I can just weed all that out and then go back in in my regular email client to read through the stuff that's actually still relevant and useful. It's a great idea for an app especially if you're not using any like sorting app like Samebox or something where you've got a bunch of it you know, going already, getting sorted for you. This gives you a, a quick way to get through a, a deep inbox. Does mm-hmm. it work also with Google and you know the other mail services? Yeah, I, I'm using it with, uh, with Google. I think it uses okay. just a regular IMAP connection to them rather than you know, the special sauce uh, Google APIs that dedicated apps like MimeStream do, but mm-hmm. it, it works just fine through IMAP with, uh, with a Gmail account. I've okay. seen apps like this in the past for sorting through photos where it'll go through your photo library and let you quickly discard or keep them, but it makes total sense for email as well. So another app I've got here that I particularly like that I don't think a lot of people have heard of is called Hand Mirror. Uh, it's a very simple menu bar app. Uh, And all it does is you bring it up and it will show you whatever the view is through your webcam. Uh, You know, most uh, uh, services like Zoom or Microsoft Teams, when you start a meeting, they'll show you a little view of your webcam just so you can, you know, make sure there's nothing embarrassing in frame or that sort of thing. But they don't do that until the meeting starts. And if you want to do a little more prep ahead of time, you know, I had found myself firing up Photo Booth. To, to get a look at what my webcam looked like. This is much simpler, much easier. I've actually got it set to a, a Hyper-M uh, combination on my keyboard and just gives me a quick look. Um, particularly important for me because I've got those two key light errors on my video conferencing setup so I can bring it up and then uh, use, uh, uh, use my Stream Deck to adjust the intensity of the two lights to get a good look. 
Yeah, this one has come up before, and we got a lot of positive feedback after we talked about it the last time. So maybe for anybody that missed this, this one's kind of a no-brainer. Another one I'm still using is Carabiner Elements. This is the big Swiss Army knife key remapping tool. Uh, really, the only thing I use it for is to set up a, a hyper key, where one key simulates pressing Command Option Control Shift. Uh, another Brett Terpstra uh, popularization, at least. I yeah. don't know if he invented it or not, but I certainly heard about it through him. Uh, the hyperkey, exceedingly useful for me. I do a ton of hyperkey-based uh, shortcuts, uh, keyboard shortcuts. I know there are other apps that have tri- that have incorporated this since then. I think Better Touch Tool, this is one of a bazillion features that they offer, or there's some dedicated apps out there. But whatever they're using does not seem to be as good or as low level as Carabiner Elements. Uh, On the flip side, Carabiner Elements is not the most user-friendly tool, but I've found it to be much more reliable than any other way of setting up a a hyperkey. So I'm still a a big fan. It's it's one of those Mac apps that I think a lot of people get nervous every year. Like, are they going to be able to run it on the new version of Mac OS? But I mean, they've They've kept it up to date. That team uh, behind it, I'm not sure how big it is, but they are staying on top of things. Yeah, you always wonder, is Apple going to throw something in the OS that just shuts it down? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Makes me nervous too. And the last thing I mentioned here is actually a service. It's Kagi. This is a search engine that you pay for. Uh, And this is actually fairly recent for me. I've only been playing with it for the past couple of weeks. And really what pushed me to it is the declining quality of Google search. Uh, The the actual Google search results are still about as good as ever, I think, but they are just buried under so much crap these days. Not just the ads, but all these boxes and summaries. You you really have to dig down to get to the actual search results. Kagi is much cleaner, offers a lot more control. You know, it will pop up the little box that says, summarizes the Wikipedia article, but you can turn that on or off. Uh, also has, you know, no ads, obviously, since you're paying for it. Uh, it's, I think, $5 a month for 300 searches or $10 for unlimited, something like that. And obviously, it'll have some privacy advantages over Google. Uh, if you look in their settings page, they have a setting for search history, and it basically says, we don't keep track of your search history. If we ever come up with a feature where that would be useful, we'll include that setting here. But until then, we're not tracking anything. Hmm. How does it compare to Google in general? I mean, in terms of like when you're looking for, do you, are you finding what you need? I'm finding what I need. The, the quality of the search results themselves maybe aren't quite as good as Google is, but they're... I, I think the trade-off of having them much more clearly presented and easily accessible is worth it. And I can always just go to Google and search if I'm having having trouble finding it. But I think as sort of the the first line of search for me, it's it's working out so far. I love the idea of this, right? I mean, it's a user-supported search because for so long, search has been ad-supported and that has had all sorts of negative consequences. Um, have you worked with any of the other like competitors to Google, like DuckDuckGo and um, some of these others out there? I played with DuckDuckGo a couple of years ago, and it didn't really stick for me. Uh, but I haven't looked at it more more recently than that. 
Well, it's interesting to me that you, you came to this one and I definitely want to hear how that works for you over time. If it, I would recommend if you want to give this a try, they have a per month and a yearly subscription just sign up for a month or two and just see, you know, how much you use it. Does it work on mobile as well? It does. Uh, because you have to be signed in, they, they, they seem to have to do some interesting things to be the default search on Safari. It's not quite as easy as just switching to, to Bing or DuckDuckGo. You have to install their extension, but it yeah. does work across, uh, uh, across, you know, desktop, iPad, uh, iPhone. And the best part of it is probably that you just get the results. You don't get all the other garbage. Yeah. The fact that the very top thing on the listed on the search result page is a search result is really a breath of fresh air. I think I'm going to try this for a month and just see how it goes. You got me tempted, Chris. Did you look at any other, their competitors, any other paid services when, when finding Coggy? Not really. I, I, I'm actually not aware of any other for pay ad free search engines. Uh, yeah. All of Google's competitors seem to have the same ads. advertising yeah. supported model. They just don't share the ad data quite as widely. Do you guys think Apple made a mistake never doing their own search engine? I think they may be forced to do, well, not forced. They will choose to do their own search engine if they can no longer have the deal with Google. Because yeah. uh, one of the things that seems to be coming out of the Google antitrust file is just how much money Apple is getting to have Google in that default spot. And I can't imagine they'd get that much money from someone else. Yeah. I mean, it's billions a year. That's what we're hearing. I don't think the actual number has been released, but it's a lot. And that's a really good reason for Apple not to bother making their own. But if they're not allowed to to get paid for that anymore, I could see them. Uh, taking the step i'm sure they've got like a skunk works project on it uh i don't know how good is it going to be like one of these apple Maps situations where it's not that good to begin with or is it going to be really great i don't know but but uh it, it is an interesting time and then of course the other thing with search engines is are they going to go the way of the dodo in general as ai takes over and does search for us i don't know it's going to be interesting times well, either way, Chris, thanks for that. Thanks for that referral. I'm going to give Coggy a try for a month. Maybe I'll report back on the next feedback episode of Mac Power Users. Labs members will definitely be hearing about it. But the uh, it's just such an interesting idea in 2023 to make a search engine and say, well, we'll just let the users pay for it and we won't give them ads. I, that is very attractive to me. For the price of 5 or $10 a month. If, so if you're going to use 300 searches a month, you can get away from $5 unlimited ten dollars um i justify a lot on the fact that i never buy starbucks guys let me just put it that way <laughs> chris of church so glad we were able to have you on the show you've been on my list for a long time especially when you made this big change in your life and i know you're using all kinds of cool tech out in the river but then you come back and you're and you're doing stuff at that remarkable desk and i i know i keep saying this game but you got to see chris's setup it's it's awesome uh, three beautiful screens right next to each other and um, and uh, just a, a really nice setup. Uh, where do people find you, Chris? Well, they can find me at uh, grandadventure.blog or I uh, hang out on the um, MPU forums a bit. I actually haven't been there quite as much lately, 
uh, especially during the summer. I've been doing some other stuff, but uh, should be back on there now that I'm uh, back home for the off season. Excellent. And I want to thank our sponsors this week, 1Password, Backblaze, Clean My Mac X, and Indeed. On the more power users version of the show, that's the ad-free extended version of the show. You can sign up for it, relay.fm slash MPU. We're going to be talking to Chris about Vision Pro. He has thoughts and so do we. So uh, stick around if you're a more power user subscriber. Otherwise, thanks so much. And we'll see you next time.